Amen. Yeah, y'all go ahead and have a seat. Fellowship College, how are we doing tonight? Y'all. All right, hang on, pause. This is a college service. I know if some of y'all come Sunday morning, it might not be as many yells and woos and amens, but I would love personally, even if it's just me up here as we're going through the scripture, you get excited about something, yell, clap. You can jump up and down if you want. If you get angry at something, holler at me. You do whatever. I want some feedback. So college, how are we doing this evening? Yes. That's the energy that we need. My name is Jacob. If I haven't got to meet you yet, I have the privilege of serving on uh, the college team here. And if you're in this room, you're one of my favorite people because this room is a group of my favorite people. Getting to come here on Sunday nights, worship with y'all, uh, just dive into the text of scripture with y'all is genuinely one of my favorite things to do. So I'm super excited to be here tonight. And I'm extra excited because there's a, a story that I've wanted to share with y'all for a little bit now. It's something that happened just a while ago to me. And I'm really excited about it. And so the story begins, morning routine. I wake up, alarm goes off around 6, 6.15. I walk down the stairs to the kitchen. Uh, I, got my, I always get up, put my hoodie on because it's like cozy time, got my hood up. And so I'm just kind of zoned in trying to wake up. I'm about half, half awake, half asleep. I get the kettle, pour some water in the kettle, put it on the pot, light up the stove, and wait for my water to boil so I can make some coffee. So I'm sitting here, hoodie up, just waiting for this water to boil, and it takes a while. So I'm just standing here trying to like muster the consciousness to me this early in the morning. Still dark outside. As I sit here and stare at the water boiling, flame going, kind of transfixed by the flame. Out of the corner of my eye, I see something. What was that? It was a bug. There's a bug flying around. How it got in the house? I don't know. I hate bugs. Bug flies in. On closer inspection, I notice that's not just a bug. That's a moth. Moths are gross. You wanna know why they're gross? Because whenever you smash them, they leave moth dust all over you. Somehow they disappear and they just leave dust. It's like a magic trick and I hate them. And so I go to, I go to give it a smack, but then he kind of gets near the kettle. I'm like, oh, don't wanna burn my hand. So kind of hold back. And he knows, like he knows I'm not gonna go near him if he's near the kettle. And so I'm waiting, waiting for this moth. Come on, moth, get away from that kettle. Give you a good smack. And as I watch the moth, fly around the kettle, it flies, the moth flies directly into the flame of the stone, the stove and incinerates right in front of my eyes. Like a moth to a flame. It happened right in front of my eyes. I've never had something like this in my life happen. I looked around, none of my roommates are downstairs. I'm like, you're kidding me. I was like, God, God, you have to be telling me something because I just watched a moth fly straight into the flame. And it was absolutely wild. And as soon as that happened, I thought, you know what? That is gonna make a great illustration story someday. And I got to use it tonight and it was wild. Now, the moth, it's not, it's not just a fun story I wanted to tell y'all. Like a moth to a flame. If you're familiar with uh, that phrase, what it's trying to communicate is that there's something so desirable, aka the flame for whatever reason, that the moth gets attracted to it closer and closer and closer, even though it's detrimental to its own safety. So it's basically like, this is the most important thing right now. It's the thing that I'm so focused on, I get drawn to even unto its destruction. 
And obviously we know that there are elements of, like, of that in our own lives. There, there's something inside of us called a sinful nature that it's a broken element of us that even with things that are uh, inherently good in and of themselves, we get so attracted to them, so pulled to them, that eventually we, we make them into an idol, something that we can give our lives to, and it turns into that flame that whenever we go straight into it, it can cause destruction in our lives. And something within that sin nature that is often tied to what's going on and to, to why we make those decisions and do those types of things is something called pride. Pride often is the root of different sin that, that we fall into, that we get attracted to. And it's something that we see in the, page, the very beginning of pages of Scripture, the story of Adam and Eve and the garden. There is pridefulness happening there, and it leads to some destruction of life for them. And we're not unfamiliar with stories like this. We all have examples throughout history and in our own culture of people that have been succumbed to pride and have felt destruction in their own lives, whether it's a professional athlete who is the best of the best. And for whatever reason, some element of pride mixed with other things causes them to commit one act of infidelity that harms them significantly, the people around them, and even the careers. Or somebody who's a leader in ministry who seems to just experience blessing of ministry success and influence and it mounts and it mounts and mounts and gets caught up in a celebrity type culture and there's some element of pride mixed with some other things that leads to hundreds feeling spiritually abused of sorts. Or a staple in Western history, the story of one man who wanted to prove one point was willing to lead thousands into battle to ultimately die because there's no way that they could overcome. Pride is wrapped up in stories like this all the time. And I'm sure we can, we can go around the room and just think of all types of other stories like this. And what's happening is there is a biblical principle that gets played out that we, get, that we highlight in movies and books and TV shows and story and history classes. And it's this, that God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. God opposes the proud, and he exalts the humble. And I know we know stories of God opposing the proud. In fact, if you were in here this morning, we went through Daniel, and we saw an example of God opposing a proud king, ultimately for his glory. But tonight, I want us to consider and ask about the, the other side, the flip side of this coin, about how God exalts the humble, those who live in humility. And that's exactly what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look this idea of God exalting the humble. And we're going to do so with the story of Hannah. Now, as I say the name Hannah, uh, you might have memories coming up in your head like, oh, Hannah. Yes, I know Hannah. She's in the Old Testament somewhere, but I'm not sure really where she fits on the narrative. And that's okay because her story is really short. It's like basically a chapter and a half. She doesn't get mentioned a whole lot. However, her story is extremely, extremely significant. And we are going to look at it as an example of how God exalts the humble. And we're gonna do so by looking at three parts in her story. Her story is literally broken up into like three sections. And it's, we're looking at Hannah's humility, Hannah's exaltation, and then Hannah's prayer after this happens. And we're gonna learn from what Hannah's experience was. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to the very beginning of 1 Samuel chapter one. 
1 Samuel is the beginning of a book uh, or a section of historical books in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you get into 1 and 2 Samuel. So y'all go ahead and flip there. And tonight we're gonna dive in and look at Hannah's story of humility. So let's go ahead and jump in. Starting in verse one, we get the setting of the narrative. There was a certain man, his name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. And so right away, we get, we get a setting of the storyline. There's this family that Hannah's a part of, and it's a family where she has a co-wife with Elkanah. And in this culture, this was fairly normal, unfortunately, to have multiple wives like this. And we learn that Hannah has no children as compared to her co-wife, Peninnah. And we're gonna find out that it's because she's barren. She's infertile, she can't have kids. As I say that, you might be thinking of other women of the Old Testament who are faithful to God, who cannot have children, and God worked in their lives. She's following a similar pattern. So let's keep going. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, meaning that they would go up to the temple uh, where they would offer sacrifices and prayers and experience worshiping God alongside the priest, whenever they'd go there, he would give a portions of meat to his wife Peninnah and to all of her sons and daughters. And so that whenever they were offering sacrifices and worshiping, they would offer food and then they would end up getting to keep a part of the food and have kind of like a dinner together. And so Elkanah would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all of her children. But it says that to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he, uh, he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And so right off the bat, we see Elkanah, he has a love for Hannah that is unique compared to Peninnah because she is barren. And so he gives her double portions. And so if we think just about the setting, what's going on, specifically that it's focusing in on her barrenness, we need to think about what this means for Hannah. For her to be barren in this time and culture involves a lot of things. First of all, she just can't have kids. Now, any ladies in the room, if y'all wanna have kids one day, just imagine like the general pain that that would instill. The fact is like, gosh, I, I want children, but I can't have it. But not only that, Hannah, because she's barren in this culture, she would have been on a lower rung of the ladder socially. Within the family, she would have been the lesser wife because she was not able to produce children. And in society, she would have been seen as lesser because she could not fulfill her role of helping produce an heir and other children to continue to expand the family. And so she is in a family relationship where she can't have children and she has a co-wife who does have children. And so now she sits below Peninnah. We continue reading, going to verse six. We see that because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival, meaning Peninnah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. And this went on year after year. And whenever Hannah would go up to the house of the Lord to worship with the family, her rival, Peninnah, she'd provoke her until she would become, or she would weep and she would not eat. So right off the bat, we're like, Peninnah sucks. She is not cool. In fact, she's horrible to Hannah. She bullies her. She provokes her. She ridicules her for being barren. She says, look, I am higher than you in this family. You are lower than me socially. I have kids, you never will. And it gets to the point where she does it over and over again to where Hannah's depressed. She won't eat, she just weeps. 
she is in a really, really sad state. And immediately we see that there's some unhelpful people around her. Peninnah being the first one. We keep reading in verse eight. It says her husband Elkanah would say to her whenever this would happen, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? Now, ladies, imagine if your husband, who also has another wife, said that to you. Whenever you are weeping and so depressed you can't eat, he's like, don't, don't I mean more to you, babe, than 10 kids? Insensitive. Dismissive. Elkanah, he cares about Hannah. But in this instance, it's like, what are you talking about? She can't have kids, and this is what you're saying to her? So we have Elkanah, who's kind but dismissive. We have Peninnah, who's the worst. And then we get introduced to Eli. Now, Eli the priest, so he works in the temple. He's a spiritual leader of the people. He was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. This is happening in front of Eli. And she kept on praying to the Lord. And Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was praying in her heart, but her lips were moving and nothing was being heard. She was kind of mumbling prayers, just crying and languishing to God. And Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you gonna stay drunk? Put away your wine. So now you have Eli, who is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the people. He's supposed to have a pastoral heart. He's watching this woman who's clearly in distress Pray, weep to God. And he can't even recognize that that's what she's doing. He's like, you're drunk, woman. Put away your wine. What are you talking about? She is surrounded by unhelpful people in a situation where she can't have kids, which has many ramifications on her life. Hannah is in a very hard situation in life. And there's many who would share similar backstories to her, even today. She doesn't have a whole lot going for her, and most things that she does have are kind of going against her for the most part. So I want us to just stop and think. Everything we just learned about Hannah, this is just set it up. This is what she's dealing with. How would you be feeling? How would you respond to comments from your rival wife, to the one who's supposed to spiritually lead you and give you counsel, accusing that you're drunk? to a husband who's kind of being dismissive and seems like he doesn't really get what's going on, how would you feel about God and the situation that he's allowed you to come into? Well, we're gonna see how Hannah responds to all of this. In her downcast state, it says this in verse 10. She made a vow saying to God, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me, do not forget your servant, but give her a son, and I will give him to the Lord and all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. And so in her languishing, she prays out to God, God, I have one request. Hear the humility in her voice. I have one request. She refers to herself multiple times as your servant. Please listen to this one thing that I ask of you. Give me one son. Depending on she has so many children. I just want one son. And if you give him to me, I will give him right back to you. She's saying, I will, I will dedicate him to serve in the temple where Eli works, to serve you all the days of his life. Instead of saying, God, if you will give me this, I will then go do this other thing. 
She says, God, if you give me this, I will give this back to you. That is how much she just wants one son. It's all she asks of God. In the midst of her great sadness and oppression, Hannah remains humble before God. She, she remains faithful before God. Lord Almighty, she doesn't abandon God. She just, she asks for one thing. Now, Hannah is in a really hard state in life. And I have plenty of friends who have experienced similar things. I know Josh and Lauren have, have shared the troubles with miscarriage in their life. I have another friend who also works in full-time ministry, a couple who I look up to a ton. They've experienced the exact same thing. And both of these couples have remained humble, not understanding exactly why, but staying faithful to God in those midst. I have a friend who was a, um, a foreign exchange student whenever I was in high school. Her name's Julia, and she is uh, from Sweden, and she was here and then moved back to Sweden, and she loves business. The whole time she was in high school, she, it was obvious that she loved God. She faithfully followed God in the midst of a lot of people who did not care at all to follow God. She goes back to Sweden, takes over part of the family business, and just grinds trying to grow this business. She loves it, and she's constantly talking about how this business this is God's. Whatever happens with it, this is God's business. Whatever state in life, there's humility that we can experience and choose to live in from a very lowly state, or if things are going pretty well, continue to stay humble and relying on God. Or if you get to like some mountaintop type places, like a guy like C.T. Studd. Grayson and William were talking about world prayer. C.T. Studd, he was a huge part of missions movement out of Europe. He's a professional athlete. The queen loved him. He had his whole life laid out in front of him. He was going to just get to play cricket constantly. You know, with the, it's like the flat bat. It's kind of like, bah. it's almost like golf, but kind of like baseball. It was that in England, and he gave it all up to go to the unreached people groups of the world. He was humble, and he gave up the thing that God had given him for the sake of just being obedient to God. We see Hannah's humility in this part of her story, and we're going to learn that God exalts the humble. So as Hannah cries out to God from a place of humility and lowliness, how does God respond? This is her cry. This is her state. How does God respond? Let's keep going. Verse 19, Eli, the priest, he answered her as she's um, praying to God, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Early the next morning, they arose and they worshiped before the Lord and the temple. And then they went back to their home and Elkanah made love to his wife. And the Lord remembered her and the things that she had asked of him. And in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant. Her womb was opened up by God, just like Sarah's. And she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him, that is why I've named him Samuel. And so God responds seemingly immediately in her humility. God grants her the thing that she asked for, one son that she gets to bear. And in him bringing about this child that, I mean, just, I just imagine, you're praying before God, and all of a sudden you're barren for so long, and you have a kid, incredible, miracle, but then also she gets lifted up out of her place of lowly status. In her humility and lowliness, God lifts her out by giving her a son. No longer is she barren. No longer is she looked at as the obvious lower wife. No longer does society put her down for not producing any children for the family. God exalts her 
out of this place. And we keep going. We see this in 26. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, and then she goes to the temple where Eli serves and says, pardon me, my Lord, speaking to Eli, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you. You know, the one you said I was drunk whenever I was weeping and depressed? Yeah, me? Check this out. I got the kid. Look at this. God granted me a son. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped here. So she dedicates Samuel to service in the temple. This would have been a high honor, except it would have been costly because she doesn't get to see him all the time anymore. He's at the temple at Shiloh, which is where the people would go to worship in this area, and they didn't live there. And so only when they came to worship at the temple would she see Samuel. We keep going. Verse 21. Oh, did I mess that up? Oh, here we go. Verse 20. So in the course of time, the Lord was gracious Oh my gosh, I'm so messed up here. Y'all help, help me. Yeah, here we go. Okay, the Lord was gracious to Hannah and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. And while she had more children, Samuel the boy grew up in the presence of the Lord. And so God answered her more than she even asked. She asked for one child. He grants her Samuel, and then he gives her more children. And Samuel is growing up in the presence of the Lord uh, in the temple where he's serving. And so Hannah, in her humility, she's exalted out of barrenness with Samuel and then even more with more children. And then now Samuel is serving in the temple. And there's a specific way that Samuel serves her. See, Samuel, as, as he is devoted to the temple, says that the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of Samuel's uh, words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, all of it, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. You see, Samuel gets anointed as prophet. Samuel ends up taking the place of Eli and Eli's sons, who are really wicked, as the spiritual leader of Israel. Later on in 1 Samuel, we'd see that Samuel takes a stand for God whenever all the Israelites are like, we want a king like all the other nations around us. He was like, no, God is our king. And then eventually, whenever God's like, hey, Samuel, give the people what they want, he anoints Saul, and Saul's reign ends up going pretty bad. And then he anoints David, and David, the king after God's own heart, ends up having his own failures. And the whole time, Samuel is the signpost for God, for faithfulness to God. This is the son that God decided to give Hannah. Hannah was greatly exalted with Samuel's birth. Out of her lowly state, God exalts her more than she ever asked for. Has God ever done this for you? Have you ever been in a place of hardship or maybe even things are going pretty well and you, you ask God for something and you just depend on him? And not only does he answer that, he gives you even more. I feel like I constantly learn this as I continue to walk with God. I'm like, God, how could you continue blessing me? Even whenever it's simple things like a job that I love to do, friends that care for me so much, all these things. 
God exalts us and gives us so much more than we could ever ask or imagine. If any of y'all are, uh, are from Memphis in here, is there anybody from Memphis in here? Yeah, all right, yeah, some, Mem- I don't know what they call y'all, Memphi- Mem- Memphians, yes, Memphians, like Corinthians, except probably not as bad as those Corinthians. Um, Memphis, there's a company in Memphis uh, called Barnhart Construction. Alan Barnhart uh, was a man who, him and his wife, uh, were about to go overseas. They were gonna go church plant. Uh, they had decided, hey, this is what we wanna do. We wanna serve God with our life. And right before they left, uh, his parents came to him and his brother and said, hey, we got this little mom and pop construction company. We wanna give it to y'all to run, to own the whole thing. If y'all don't want it, that's fine, we'll sell it. But we, we wanna give this to y'all. Now, Alan and his wife, they'd already planned, like they're going. And she's like, hey, we are going overseas. And so they pray through it. And he just starts to feel like, man, this, this feels like a really good opportunity, even though I wanna go overseas to, to honor my parents and maybe do something unique with this company. And so they decide to take it over. And it starts out as a real small company, like nothing to talk about at all. And they, at the very beginning, decide this company belongs to God. We are stewards of it. God will either grow it or put it in the dirt. But however we do it, we're gonna be generous and so they set goals for giving from the company's profits. And the first year, they gave like, uh, like ten dollars or $20,000, which is a lot. And they're giving it specifically to, to ministry, a lot of it overseas church planning. And they're like, man, this is awesome. We just get to give like $20,000 away. It's great. A few years goes by. They end up giving $100,000 one year. A few more years go by. They give $500,000. A couple more years goes by. They give a million dollars away. And eventually, the company is growing so much and experiencing so much success that he and his brother and their family say, hey, we're putting a cap on how much we make from the company. And it was like just enough to provide for their, he had a family of five, his wife, five kids, just enough for that. I mean, he could have been rolling in it. But he's like, nope, this is all we need. We're gonna give the rest of it away. And as it continued to grow year after year after year, they eventually made the goal of giving away a million dollars every month. And they hit that and eventually got to the point where they're giving away tens of millions of dollars every year. And then he finally said, you know what? This company that is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, I'm just gonna give it away. And so they gave it into a trust to where he and his brother only make operating decisions. And outside of the things that they need to continue to invest back in the company, it all goes away overseas. They don't take any of it. God exalted that company and him and his brother without even exalting them financially necessarily because they stayed faithful to God in their humility. God, we don't need it. This is yours. God exalts the humble. And we learn from Hannah's experiences here that God listens to and exalts the humble and the lowly. So what would Hannah say about her experience? What does she take from this? We get to see this in a prayer that she says right after she devotes Samuel to the temple. And if you guys wouldn't mind, I wanna do something a little different. Uh, I was inspired by a couple Sundays ago. I would love to read this prayer over us, and I want you all to close your eyes and just listen to it. I could throw up on the screen, but I don't, I don't wanna just write anything down. Just listen to Hannah praising God through prayer after she devotes Samuel. Close your eyes and listen to the words of Hannah. Hannah, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. For I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like you, Lord. 
There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. The Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, and she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in a place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. All right, y'all can open your eyes. That is the prayer that Hannah prays to God. If you, if you listen to that prayer, you'll see something that Tim Keller hits on in this quote from, from one of his books about praying and drawing near to God. He says, prayer is continuing a conversation that God has started through his word and his grace, which eventually becomes a full encounter with him. God started this, this experience of life with Hannah through his word and his grace, and it turned into a full encounter of life with God, and then she responds with this prayer of praise. We see different aspects of her prayer. There are three instances where she, <clears throat> excuse me, mentions specifically things that she's gone through. Verse two, her heart rejoices in the Lord. He's lifted uh, her horn high and, and her mouth boasts over her enemies. Pity, no? Verse three, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. Pity, no? Verse five, those who were full hire themselves out for food. She goes on, she who is barren has borne seven children. This is coming from her heart. But so much of it is not even specifically about her. It's just about God and his character. It could be a model for us in prayer. There's no one like the holy God, the holy Lord. There's no one beside you. There's no rock like our God. Six and seven, the Lord brings to death and makes alive. He brings down from the grave and raises up. Verse 80, he raises the poor from the dust. He seats them with princes. He has them inherit a throne of honor. Do you hear? God opposes the proud and he exalts the humble. This was Hannah's natural response to everything that she went through, through her humility and her suffering and then through her exaltation that God chose to bestow upon her. And she ends it with this. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Starting to hear something that sounds a little familiar. Something about somebody that we know. A little hint, a little Easter egg of something to come. Because whenever we get to Luke in the Gospels, we hear Mary, the mother of Jesus, pray this to God. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has lifted up the humble. Do you hear how similar Mary's prayer after she learns 
that she's gonna be the one carrying the anointed one, the Messiah, the one that was gonna deliver Israel, the greater fulfillment of what Samuel did for Israel in that brief moment in history about Jesus, it's modeled after Hannah's prayer. Jesus would come along and he would begin teaching on the exact same thing about God opposing the proud but exalting the humble. The beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. The humble shall be exalted. And then he serves as the exact example of that. The one who should be exalted lives the most clear life of humility. And then he does get exalted onto a cross, murdered for treason that he didn't commit. And then after he's resurrected from that death that he died, on behalf of anyone who would believe that he is God, he is the chosen one, he is the king, he does get exalted to the most high, seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over the earth right now. Paul would go on and say, follow in Jesus's model, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then he talks about Jesus's return from his high exalted place, saying that he will wipe away the lawless one. All arrogance will be snuffed out under his rule. The humble will be exalted. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And Jesus is that example that we get to follow. So if we today are God's people, we learn about Hannah's story from so many years ago, and Jesus models it for us, then what does that mean for our own lives? After I stood in the kitchen just dumbfounded at this parable that I saw play out in front of me, it was the moth flew into its incineration. Uh, I walked out the door that day and was prideful. I know I was. I was prideful. I had grandiose thoughts about myself towards others. I, I, didn't even, I didn't even learn the lesson. That was a lesson from God. He's like, hey, you want to see something cool? Watch this. And then I didn't even take anything from it. Pride is something that no matter what state of life we're in, lowest of lows, highest of highs, is something that we must be mindful of. It is a daily fight killing that sin but then also choosing to live in humility and, and trust God, trusting God with whatever is going on in your life, knowing that this principle, God exalts the humble, no matter what that looks like. If it's right now or down the road or whenever he returns, the humble will be exalted. So how do we do that today? How do we do that in our current circumstance? Whether you're in school with professors or, or or other students that you're working with, or is it with friends or, or parents or, or other authority figures like that in your life, whether it's with employers or coworkers, or whether it's with somebody you would consider kind of your enemy, like you do not get along. Penina. We practice humility because God exalts the humble. And so I wanna give us just one challenge. If there's one thing we can take away from Hannah's story Practically, to go do, we walk out of the doors knowing this truth about God opposing the proud, exalting the humble, and that Jesus is the centerpiece on our behalf for that. I wanna challenge you with this. One time this week for five minutes, 
get in some type of posture of humility before God. It could be on your knees. It could be prone on your face. And spend time praying like Hannah. You can pray Hannah's prayer. Praise God for who he is in his sovereignty, in his greatness, for who Jesus is as he's been exalted. Confess sin, pride, arrogance, anything else. Thank him for the deliverance he's given you if you are in Christ tonight and ask him to do things in your life and in others' lives in that posture of humility. If you do it this week, I challenge you to do it again. Then make it a regular practice. There's something about getting in a physical position of humility and thankfulness before God that just does something to your heart as you pray before God. That is my challenge to y'all, and it's because I want to, as much as anybody else in here, follow in Jesus' example of living out this humility and experience, however God wants to, the exaltation of the humble because of his goodness and nothing that we have done. So join me in coming before God in a spirit of humility and thankfulness as we pray and worship him. God, we praise you because you deserve it. You're the king of kings. You're the one true God. There's no other gods before you or like you. And even in the hardest of situations we have experienced, God, you are there, you are present, you are good. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that for every believer here, you just create a spirit of humility in our lives, that we would be more and more reliant on you and that we would see this principle play out and it would be a testimony to those who do not know you of your goodness that you bring about justice into the world in these ways. God, we praise you and we thank you for these things and it is in your name, Jesus, that we pray, amen.